0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards.
1: Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. I'm Scott Richards, and as you can see, my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards, is back in the saddle again. Uh, great to see you up and around and feeling better after a little uh, bout of the bug. Uh, if you would like to uh, get in touch with us and share your questions on the Word of God, we would love to be able to do that. A few prophecy updates we have current events and so forth uh, that we'd like to share with you on the broadcast today. But as always, if you've got a question about the Bible, any passage you'd like to explore a little bit more up close and personally in the Bible, maybe uh, you found yourself uh, in a situation where you had to defend the reliability of the Bible in this increasingly skeptical and controversial time we live in feel free to jump on in and get those questions to us. Uh, Of course, we'll be happy to take a look ahead through biblical prophecy. We'll be happy to uh, deal with even current controversies that can surround us both inside and outside the church from a decidedly biblical point of view. That's what we do each and every day on each edition of A Reason for Hope. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. If you'd like to get your questions to us,
0: uh, Sean, how can people do that? Well, if you'd like to email us, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you want to join us face-to-face or clarify the spelling of that email address, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. And if you click on the Watch Live tab in the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to our streaming page, ccftucson.online.church, where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. And if it is post-Daylight Savings Time, for those of you listening beyond Arizona's borders, the Pacific Time should work as well. But if you want to make sure that all of this falls in line with your schedule, we do have a countdown clock to know where exactly that'll fit in. If you want to join us on social media, YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship, of Tucson, and if you want to give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll have the benefit of being notified when we are going live. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, or even having information they don't like removed from our videos without our permission, which has happened multiple times, we want to encourage you to make it a habit of joining us on our website, which once again is calvarychristianfellowship.com, they can't censor us on our own platform. We're looking forward to engaging with you, but just note that as long as the questions are questions, they are sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, and they are about the Bible, we'll be happy to engage with you on that level. Or just make sure that as long as those rules are adhered to, we will return the respect that is given, and i looking forward to even engaging with those who are hostile to our worldview regarding the Bible being a worthwhile authority. Just make sure that you understand what the purpose of this broadcast is, And in noting that point as well, making sure that uh, God gives us more to walk away with than when we started, why don't we uh, receive a bit from Him so we have stuff to share?
1: Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to explore your word today. We pray that you would guide and direct our conversation. We pray that your word would go forth uh, in clarity, in grace, and in truth. We pray, Father, that uh, perhaps even for those that are on the outside looking in, at a uh, living relationship with you. They would discover what your word has to say uh, about uh, your kind intentions for their life, Lord, for your desire to uh, provide them forgiveness and reconciliation into a genuine living relationship uh, with you. Lord, deepen our understanding, uh, cause us to be built up in our knowledge of you. Help us, Lord, uh, to be able to practically apply your word, even in the most challenging areas of our lives, but most importantly, comfort us with the uh, The amazing message that you, the true and living God, love us and gave your Son so that we can have a relationship with you.
0: We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, before we get into current events and to the objections that are sent along to us today, uh, what is keeping our eyes on the future, especially since as we're reporting on it, it now fits into the past? Yeah, just a a few uh, updates uh, that uh, we
1: want to uh, pass along to you. As you know, we've been keeping you posted on uh, developments uh, regarding uh, the uh, jump-starting of the Iran uh, nuclear talks. Uh, This is uh, incredibly important uh, as far as our understanding of biblical prophecy is concerned, because as uh, we've mentioned to you before, uh, Israel is the centerpiece of God's uh, plan to right this world gone wrong. That is uh, where Jesus is going to return again. And uh, when we see Uh, The events of the last days and the end times, inevitably, they all circle around Israel, including the predictions that at a particular point in the future, all nations will be gathered together against Israel, and uh, God alone will be uh, their defenders. Now, we've told you before uh, about what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, regarding the Iranian uh, nuclear program. Uh, We've told you a bit Uh, about how Iran has now enriched uh, their uranium stocks to 90% purity, which is more than enough uh, sufficient to uh, build an atomic bomb. Uh, The uh, nuclear negotiations uh, between uh, the European Union, uh, the United States, uh, Russia, and uh, China are also players in all of this, uh, in a sense, uh, are non-starters because Iran does seem to uh, be interested in pushing forward on uh, their nuclear program, no matter what goes on. But over the weekend, uh, there's uh, been some interesting developments that have taken place. One of the developments is the possibility of moving these negotiations from Vienna, Austria, where they are uh, currently uh, uh, being held, uh, to a non-democratic site in the Middle East, the uh, nation of Qatar has been suggested as a new site for uh, these talks, which would be a welcome development for the Iranians because Gutter has been very sympathetic to the Iranian cause down through time. Uh, We are told that uh, there are also developments that Biden administration officials and representatives of Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi may finally look each other in the eye. At this point, uh, because of the diplomatic sensitivities involved, uh, whenever a position is put forward by either of these sides uh, a, a go-between, an emissary has to, uh, to uh, take the message from one room to another uh, because uh, the Iranians are not willing to sit in a room where there are uh, U.S. Uh, diplomatic emissaries uh, involved at that particular time. Another interesting uh, development uh, that has uh, gone on here is that the United States over the weekend made a decision to allow members of the Iranian Iranian Republican Guard Corps, which is uh, listed as a uh, state-sponsored terrorist organization by the United States right now, to be able to enter the United States as long as they can show that they were drafted into this particular organization and do not uh, pose a threat to the United States. Now, I am really not sure— uh, what difference it makes uh, that a person was drafted into the Iranian Republican Guard Corps? Uh, anyone that signs up for that particular uh, organization has got to be pretty hardcore in terms of advancing Iran's uh, desires uh, and uh, their uh, their priorities in this world. But it does appear to be sort of a uh, olive branch that uh, the United States is extending towards iran uh... ultimately i think the the main question this was raised in an analysis in the Jerusalem Post today, uh, they asked the question, what happens in 2025 when Ibrahim Raisi can order the building of a massive industrial-sized fleet of uh, uranium enrichment centrifuges? Will Israel, the United States, and the EU reach a deal to prevent the Iranian Republic from translating this into nuclear weapons, or will the Ayatollahs already have postponed so many pieces that they will have achieved checkmate? Well, I think The final statement there is pretty much uh, where things are going as far as this particular nuclear agreement is concerned. Uh, The other uh, uh, wild card in all of this has been uh, the United States in a sense playing both sides. Uh, We have received confirmation as well from a number of sources that uh, the United States did in fact participate with uh, the Israeli uh, Air Force in uh, maneuvers off the coast of Israel that would uh, be uh, a simulation, if you will, of what it would mean for Israeli forces and perhaps even with the United States support, uh, an attack would be made on Iranian nuclear sites. So that's really where that's standing right now, and we will keep you up to date on that. Uh, Closer to home, a uh, fascinating development has uh, taken place. Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, we talked quite a bit Uh, about uh, the uh, U.S. uh, Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision returning uh, the right to decide abortion policy to the states. That's all the Dobbs decision uh, has made over the weekend. There was a lot of uh, hysteria about uh, the the uh, Supreme Court banning abortion in the United States. Did no such thing. As a matter of fact, uh, certain states that are very pro-abortion uh, have already been making uh, moves to uh, further radicalize uh, their abortion policies to include Uh, abortion up to the ninth month of pregnancy. Other states uh, have uh, made moves to uh, outlaw abortion or to return uh, their particular state's policy to the the pre-Roe versus Wade decision uh, status. That would include the state of Arizona that we have here. Uh, If someone says to you the uh, Supreme Court has moved to ban abortion, that is not the case. All it has done is to a rule that the Roe versus Wade decision that found somewhere in the U.S. Constitution a guaranteed right to abortion uh, for women. It simply was not the case. Uh, All this has done is return this policy to the states and, uh, you know, again, as uh, evangelical born-again believing, uh, -believing, Bible-believing Christians, uh, we would believe that all this has done is really um, not uh, settle the issue. But uh, create a situation where we have to be uh, more uh, involved in terms of uh, deciding who's going to be our representatives and what our state policies are going to be along that line. So, very important decision was made here. Today, however, another Supreme Court decision was handed down in a uh, decision that allowed uh, a former high school football coach by the name of Joe Kennedy. Uh, to uh, uh, win in his conflict with the Bremerton, Washington School District. You see, from 2008 to 2015, Kennedy coached uh, with the Bremerton School District in Washington. Uh, he made it a practice after the games were over to go out onto the field and pray privately, alone, uh, thanking the Lord for uh, what uh, had happened in the game and for his opportunities to be able to uh, coach the uh, the student-athletes at Bremerton High School. Well, uh, again, uh, initially he prayed alone, but he was soon joined unprompted uh, by players, and the public uh, school district argued that Kennedy was engaging in unprotected government speech and that the coach was forcing player prayer on players, uh, something that Kennedy steadfastly denied. Well, Kennedy's uh, appeal of this decision that caused him to lose his job in 2015 uh, has gone through a number of different uh, levels of uh, appeal, finally getting to the Supreme Court. In April, the former coach explained the pattern of his prayer to Fox News. He said, the prayer after the football game, that was just myself. I would take a knee at the 50-yard line after the game. After a few months, the kids would ask, Coach, what are you doing out there? And I'd say, I was thanking God for what you did. they asked if they could join. I said, it's America, it's a free country, you do what you want to do. And that's kind of how it started. On Monday, the Supreme Court agreed with Kennedy and his legal team had been suing the Bremerton School District, alleging they violated his First Amendment rights when they told him he couldn't pray on the field. In the court's opinion, Judge uh, Neil Gorsuch wrote in part, Here, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance doubly protected by free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. The only meaningful justification the government offered for its reprisal against Kennedy rested on a mistaken view that it had a duty to ferret out, fare out and suppress such religious speech. He continued, Religious observances... Uh, even as it allows comparable secular speech, uh, the Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. Well, Kennedy now lives in Florida and has previously stated that he'd like to move back to Washington and resume coaching at Bremerton High School as uh employee and alma mater. Uh, we don't know how that is going to proceed, whether uh, Bremerton will, in fact, take him back after this. But uh, one of the most uh, interesting uh, principles in all this, there's an old saying that uh, justice delayed is justice denied. And it does appear that uh, since uh, Coach Kennedy was out of a job since 2015, in uh, a school district he definitely wanted to serve uh, in uh, for no other reason than they took a hostile view against uh, protected First Amendment right uh, speech, that is his ability to pray on the field afterwards he wasn't mandating or forcing players to pray with him uh... it uh, raises a, a question okay uh... who's going to pay kennedy's legal costs that have been incurred in all these different appeals and secondly is there going to be any kind of compensation for the fact that kennedy was out of a job uh... by a uh, wrong headed decision by the school district since 2015. So we'll keep you posted on how those developments happen. But a very positive step forward and a very strong reaffirmation of the fact that the right to pray is covered by the First Amendment.
0: Right. um, Real quick, before we go to the question you received, Casey wants some clarification on a topic you mentioned kind of in passing last Sunday, but nonetheless uh, still relevant. The mention of Simon of Cyrene, in the 23rd chapter the Gospel of Luke, Right. in the parallel account in Mark chapter 15, it specifies a certain individual who was prominently known in the Church. Two, actually. Yeah, uh, Alexander as well. Yeah. But Rufus, whose name means redhead. If you guys are fans of Kim Possible, maybe that has double meaning for you. But yeah. the question is, in the uh, go- Epistle to the Romans, there's another mention in chapter 16 of Rufus. And his mother to be greeted if this is the same person. Now, you mentioned it very briefly, you believe it's the same person, and uh, Casey and her husband just want to know why. Well, uh, again,
1: one of the the main reasons is the fact that, first of all, the Apostle Paul would take time out of, uh, at the end of his letter, to send along personal greetings. Uh, An individual along this line would be very, very prominent uh, the fact that Mark also mentions Rufus as an individual, along with his brother Alexander, uh, is also a, a, a indicator that Rufus wasn't a sideline player in the life of the early church. Now, uh, again, I would be the first to tell you that uh, saying that this Rufus that is mentioned here in the Book of Romans, it would be wonderful if Paul had, for instance, said Rufus, who was the uh, son of of, uh, of Simon of Cyrene, who uh, carried Jesus' cross, that would eliminate all controversy there. But uh, the fact that Rufus is pointed out as, an, as this individual, as well as his mother, uh, is a very significant uh, statement there. Those who would take the opposite point of view would say, well, then why don't they mention Simon of Cyrene or his brother Alexander in this particular passage as well? We really don't know. We don't know if Alexander was there Uh, to be able to receive the greetings that Paul was sending along uh, to Ephesus from Rome, but uh, we do know, we don't know if uh, Simon of Cyrene returned to the Cyrenian areas in Libya or not. Uh, There is some level of speculation there, but the fact that uh, this individual is mentioned in Mark, and uh, the fact that, uh, that Mark was writing the memoirs of Simon Peter, most believe when Simon Peter was in Rome himself. probably indicate that this fellow Rufus was the uh, same individual mentioned in Mark as being the son of Simon of Cyrene.
0: And if you want to look more into this, they're generally held more in Roman Catholic circles, but information's information. There's also some first century Church Fathers that would make that inference, and while you should always take traditions with a grain right. of salt, they do make that claim as well. It's not unanimous, but the later sources you go, the more speculation there is, such as the case of history, the earliest ones do make that rec- a that, uh, assumption so we'll you CBS
1: it. seems to indicate that was the case yep
0: yeah. so take that yeah. okay Casey, thank you for the question here's a fun one uh, we basically got called out for being the false teachers that we are and the Internet of course being the uh, infallible source on these sort of things wanted to make sure that we didn't uh, deceive you all, I'm being sarcastic, of course, into making the claim that, you know, the Bible's true or anything like that. And the crux of the issue, I guess, that we're going to be dealing with today is we actually believe that Moses is a real person. And the person went out of their way to explain to us and to the individual they were harassing, I'm sorry, uh, edifying, uh, that Moses didn't exist and therefore the Bible's uh, full of errors. Well, I apologize in advance for this, but uh, I actually have some historical information on whether or not Moses existed, so maybe and we've it, all and it is will And it is a huge question because
1: uh, these days, uh, you know, there's things like the Zeitgeist movie that's out there. Uh, by the way, the Zeitgeist movie isn't just something that tries to say that the Bible borrowed heavily from uh, pagan mythologies and christianized them or Judaized them, uh but uh and we we've dealt with that issue before but the zeitgeist movement is also uh pretty rife with global conspiracies and and things along this line uh that uh that really don't stand up under a lot of examination uh the the individual and you know again uh we uh are more than happy to take uh, questions from those who are skeptical, those who have uh, honest questions about the word. This person kind of went on a diatribe of saying that anybody that teaches that Moses was an actual individual is lying to you and that she was there to save people from this kind of doctrine. Well, you know, all the uh, hysterical underpinnings involved with that, it does raise an interesting question. How do we know, for instance, the individuals that we find in the scripture actually lived. And I think the example of Moses would be a great place to start, because Moses isn't what you would call a uh, bit player in uh, the narrative of the Bible. Uh, So why would we consider Moses to be a historical figure, and is it just one of those situations, as skeptics are often saying about the, uh, the whole controversy about, uh, uh, you know, when life begins and so forth? Uh, are we using the Bible to prove the Bible, or is there anything more substantial that we can point to than that?
0: All right. Well, I guess the same way we know anything about anyone in history. And if the audience is an atheist, or at least a skeptic, we won't make the inference they deny that there's any possibility of there being a power above themselves. But we will at least work with the information we have. They're starting from the position, A is not historical. So let's ask, what is historical then, if not A? Yeah. If we're going to come to any conclusion about history, let's start with the word. History or histor means eyewitness, that there were people there to verify something actually took place. Now, they'll usually go on a tangent at this point and say, well, eyewitness testimony is the most unreliable source of information. Well, good, but that means that you've pretty much thrown out the entire... Not in a court of law, though. Yeah, Yeah. um, (laughs) Jay Warner Wallace would uh, agree with you very sarcastically. Mm. The point being made is this. When it comes to history, you need to be able to ask, and answer three simple questions. Are there people, places, and things that back up that person or what they did? Now, obviously, any historical source is going to have monkey business throughout it. A great comparison we often make as far as ancient figures in the world go is Alexander the Great, his earliest biography written centuries after his death, and, of course, uh, begins with the very neutral words of it is commonly believed that Alexander was the son of Jupiter and was conceived as a result of a well, pagan woman doing things with snakes that pagan women generally do, but the point being made is that. A lot of miracles, a lot of superstition, a lot of mythological elements are included in, but that in no ways discounts whether or not Alexander was a historical figure or that his conquest of pretty much all of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and of course the Greek Isles going all the way to the border of India— is, in fact, false. We just need to make sure we know what we can trust and what we can't. So if the bar set pretty low for us, did right. Moses exist? We need just need to ask three questions. Are there people, places, and things that line up with the basic story we're told about him? And we can generally look in five places. The first is regarding multiple attestation, or how many sources can I get on this guy? And the most strict method, by the way, is a minimum of two. They would consider this as good as gold as far as ancient history. If you can have two separate people, doesn't matter how far, doesn't matter how close, doesn't even matter if it's their own source. If you have one source, that's not history, that just means someone said something. So if our only evidence for the existence of Moses were the books of Moses, or the Torah, we would actually have to require or identify that as five sources, but let's be nice and just say that it's one. We would not have a historical case. The problem is, I can name two right off the bat. We also have, not the Bible by the way, the annals of the Jews, Flavius Josephus, who was a Roman-commissioned historian who went into his Jewish history, and in the grand total of his second book, chapters uh, 9 through 16, as well as the entirety of books 3 through 4, we are given details about Moses' life that go beyond the biblical record. The information he got wasn't from the Bible, it was from Egyptian and Romans, or technically the Contemporary Canaanite sources, right, and this includes information like him going and leading military conquest into Ethiopia, which was a middle term for Central South, Central Eastern Africa, just below Egypt and the Nile. Right. So when we're talking about information about Moses, him doing things that isn't in the Bible requires him to be doing things and it's not just because the bible said so we have two sources there and of course as christians we would be remiss if we failed to mention jesus thought he was a historical figure in the gospel accounts in john chapter 5 in particular verses uh, 45 through 46 he made an observation that moses wrote about me and now that
1: tells us a couple of things first of all tells us jesus mentioned moses by name it tells us that moses wrote the first five books of the bible and it also tells us uh, that uh, moses
0: was prophesying about christ so interesting now, continuing on with that point, and we can leave out maybe the epistles of Paul regarding the book of Romans or 1 Corinthians, where he mentions in detail the book of Numbers as historical events. We can talk about the author of Hebrews, since it was unknown, we can cast that aside. We needed two, I just gave you three. So let's just start there. As far as written sources, though, that can, I guess, stand or fall based on your preferences. If you want to disregard the Bible, fine, but that means that you're not objective with the actual data. We're looking for people pieces of paper that mention him and talk about him. That's all that we're asking. Now if we go on to say, well, I want some archaeology. I I want some some things, not just some writing, but some things that I can go maybe to uh, verify that Moses existed. Well, for heaven's sakes, what would you be expecting? Moses lived in the Late Bronze Age, and he traveled, as far as everything is concerned, through the Sinai Desert, parts of Western Saudi Arabia, and then ultimately into what was then called Canaan, now known as Israel. If these people were nomadic, that means that they were traveling light on their feet, they weren't building buildings, the sort of things that would survive 34 to 3,500 years. Right. They didn't, you know... Create burial mounds or tombs, they just kind of left the dead in the desert to be buried, and those aren't the sort of conditions that preserve skeletons for very long, unless they're in giant pointy buildings known as pyramids, and the point, again, stands. If we're asking for something that's impossible, like DNA, then your standards are unreasonable. We need to actually go with what we can test, not what we can't. But what about, back in the terms of writing, what would give us reason to believe the writing is reliable? Well, on top of having a lot of sources, we also have information in those sources that wouldn't have been made up if Moses was made up. And that, of course, is referring to embarrassing details. And this is from both cultural perspectives, by the way, that Moses would have interacted with. First of all, as a Jew, he began uh, his reign benefiting from the family that was oppressing the Jews in Egypt, not yeah. exactly uh, something you'd want to make up about your cultural founder. He committed murder, which he was, by the way, the one who introduced the law against that very action. Not unlawful manslaughter or justified self-defense killing. he just straight up murked a guy, so let's just be clear about that. Uh, He failed in his first attempt at gaining a position of leadership in Israel. Very uh, positive, uh, I guess, trait there. He earned the displeasure of Israel's God when he refused to acknowledge his calling, and he disobeyed God at the end of his ministry in such a pivotal way that he was denied access to the Promised Land. So if we're being built up this mythological hero, Moses ends up being a tragic figure, not a cornerstone of your civilization. Yet, for some reason, they have to admit these things. Why? Maybe because there's something to admit. But note, Jews weren't the only ones observing Moses' life. Moses grew up in an Egyptian culture, and with an Egyptian upbringing and education. And how would they have seen someone abandoning our upbringing and royalty for the position of a shepherd, which by the way, they found detestable. Yeah, Uh, and this is going, by the way, to another proof we'll get to in a second. He also, note this as well, was cowardly and refused to confront the Pharaoh of Egypt, even with the God of Israel on his side, and uncharacteristic of world leaders, he was a poor speaker, according to his own admission. So these are the sort of things that would be marks against somebody living that kind of life, but if you have to admit embarrassing details, that strengthens, according to historians, the sort of things that we would say makes this more reliable, not less. If it was embellished and Moses, you know, floated three feet off the ground and can do no wrong, I'd be the first to stand with you and go, it sounds kind of fishy, but unlike Jonah, we're talking about a guy who is honest, not fishy, so let's make sure that we're going with the data we have. Hostile sources, uh, again, there are many I could mention, but let's just stick to the most uh, significant. The Amarna, Amarna, I believe is how you pronounce that, letters, yeah. which were collections of letters written in ancient Canaanite cuneiform, it's a form of uh, language that dated back to this time period, sorry documentary hypothesis, exchanged between the Egyptian pharaoh Amenhotep III and a Babylonian representative that mention the Hebrews by name. Now, when when was this dated? The century of the Exodus. So we have the people of the Exodus, the people Moses would have been leading at this time, not only in existence, but acknowledged by name, by enemies of theirs in that nation. And if they were a made-up civilization and they just came somewhere out of Assyria or out of Babylon, like the documentary hypothesis tries to infer, then they wouldn't be existing for another couple hundred years. And yet, for some reason, we have their enemies acknowledging a very much real people that Moses would have led out of Egypt existing at this time. It checks out. Uh, We can, and again, go on to this all day long, but I think the best source is non-anachronisms, meaning do the sort of things described during the life of Moses fit the historical data we actually know about that time period? Again, we're talking Late Bronze Age, so between 1500 and 1200 BC, and that's during the time of the Exodus according to the biblical account? Yes, Yes, 1450 to 1410 BC. So note, the date checks out as far as this time period. Now, just like in the late Bronze Age, there's certain technologies that didn't exist that would have existed and that had existed. And people are going to look at the information in the Exodus and say, are they talking about, you know, dinosaurs running around with uh, A-10s shooting them down from the skies? That would be what's called- Lasers. Yeah, that would be an anachronism. (laughs) Dinosaurs had died out at Mm -hmm. this time and A-10s wouldn't be invented at this time. No lasers either. So what (laughs) would we expect from the late Bronze Age? Well, first of all, there were no advanced tools of war that were inappropriate for this time period. The Jews fought, With farming tools and maybe one or two swords, but nothing that would have been an error. There weren't descriptions of things like catapults and trebuchets or things that were invented even in recent history, but not quite that historical. No gunpowder. Yeah. Yeah. No. uh, No. Yeah. I went on to note the point. Um, Their metalwork was appropriate for the late Bronze Age. It included basic brass rings and. Uh, gold leaf wrappings around boxes, as well as the shaping of solid gold in things like the Tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a scholar by the name of David Falk who wrote a book about all the ancient Egyptian technologies that the Israelites, having lived in Egypt since the time of Joseph, would have been familiar with in handling and shaping for their own customs and worship. These are things like barks, palanquins, reliquaries, and other things. We also note the custom of viewing shepherds as detestable in Egypt was accurate in Genesis 46 and verse 34. We can note that actually went back as far as the Sixth Dynasty, so almost a full thousand years before Moses. He yeah. got that fact right. Yeah, from, uh, from non-biblical sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Torah's reference to the Egyptians using tar- uh, chariots reflects the post-Hittite rule of the Middle East, which is, again, accurate. And there was nothing in the Exodus that was exclusive to the Assyrian or Babylonian periods when the Torah was argued to have been completed. So let's just wrap this all up in a nice bow for those of you listening or even taking notes. If Moses as a figure existed, then he would have been a part of a people group that also existed. We can verify that through the Amarna letters. He didn't give orders to create things they weren't already familiar with or lack the technology to construct. The right. Second Bronze Age checks out that time period. He traveled to and from places that did exist at the time. He had enemies acknowledge the existence of the people he led. He traveled through places over a short enough period of time, they left the kind of geological mark nomads would be expected to leave, people living in tents, and he admitted to embarrassing details from both cultural perspectives that he was brought up in. If you want extras, note he's treated by a historical figure, by Romans and Christians the same way that all ancient warlords and leaders were documented in historically. So if you're going to be fair, if you're going to be honest, if you're going to be informed, then you have to acknowledge Moses as just as valid a historical figure as anyone else would be in the ancient world. However, if you're not reasonable, if you're not going to be fair, or—and this is the fairest we can be—if you're not informed then don't make the definitive statement that we're false teachers because we simply have done yeah. 10 minutes of homework on this topic. But if on the other hand, you want to know about whether or not Moses existed, there's an easier way of doing that than calling us false teachers, you can ask. Yeah. So speaking of asking questions, anything more you want to add before we move on?
1: Well, you know, once again, when uh, people make these sort of uh, huge blanket statements like, oh, you can't prove to me Uh, that uh, Moses existed it reminds me of an encounter that I had when I was speaking on a college campus I was sharing uh, the claims of Christ and you know this uh, woman came uh, into the gathering and uh, she sort of interrupted everything by saying hey I think Jesus was a liar and everybody kind of looked at this woman and uh, then they all looked at me like what are you gonna say to that and and I said well that's a very interesting statement Uh, what is it about Jesus' life or teaching that convinces you that he's a liar? And she said, uh, "You mean something specific?" And I said, "Yeah, that'd be helpful, um, you know." And and she goes, "Well, yeah, I think Jesus is a liar, and you still can't prove to me that he's not." And at that point, I didn't mean to be rude, but I said, "Well, you know, let's face it: by your standard of proof, uh, you can't prove to me that you." have a mother in fact i don't think you you have a mother i think you were hatched from an egg and she said well you know, i can bring my mother down here and you can meet her personally and uh you know find out if i have a mother or not and i said not unless i care to in- investigate this thing personally and you know when someone makes these kind of blanket statements it's a really good thing for you to do and you know and, and i was very encouraged to see that some of the people that interacted uh with this person in fact one in particular uh, keeping it real uh really did try to bring it back to the personal issues that would motivate someone to make these kind of over-the-top statements but one of the things that you can do is just to say okay let's be specific you know what is it about you know specifically about the claims of christ that you find uh, isn't satisfying, or what is it about his teaching that, uh, that you find, uh, you know, so uh, dis- disqualifying? And, and get them to interact uh, with the Word of God. Get them to interact with the person of Jesus and so on. Uh, but uh, don't let them get away with things like just saying, well, you know, all good uh, scholars, think well, okay, give me a scholar who denies that Moses or Jesus existed. You're not going to find them, actually. Uh, you know, ask them for specifics in terms of uh, what they find so, uh, you know, disqualifying about the teaching of the Bible. And if they're not able to do that, you know, again, just uh, say, you know, I, if, uh, you know, I were to follow your standards of proof here, you're going to prove to me that George Washington existed. So, you know, we have to be prepared for these kind of conversations because, uh, let's face it, Uh, Things are getting more and more skeptical, and boy, if anything came out of uh, the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision last week, it was just fascinating to me, Sean, to see uh, the flurry of statements, uh, at least in social media and in other forms of media, Uh, where people are saying, it's Christians, it's these born-agains that's the problem here, and, you know, and then they would just launch into these kind of attacks. So uh, if uh, you're an evangelical Bible-believing Christian, it's, the good news is, uh, the time where we can just say, well, you know, I'll look into what I believe and why I believe it, Uh, boy, that time is passing. And really, I think non-believers do us a great favor, because the more we take a look at the life death and resurrection of Jesus the more we took at the reliability and authenticity of the bible the more we're going to have a strong foundation for our faith that's not going to fail us
0: and as an example of that, you can pray for our dear sister Hatun Tosh in England, uh, speakers' corner. She engages regularly with the Muslims there. She's taken her life into her own hands quite frequently. She was stabbed a year back, but the interesting event that took place. She today, keeps coming back. Oh too. yeah, she's lying us down to the heart. But yeah. what's interesting about uh, this recent report is that she had her Quran stolen from her, as well as a few pieces of camera equipment, and then the British police arrested her for charges they'll deem, I guess, worthy to be explained later on. She obviously is tough enough and has been dealing with this for a while, but it is a spiritual battle, and there's nothing more frustrating than having to look at it from a non-spiritual perspective. So pray that she's encouraged, pray that she's comforted, and that, uh, of course, the friends in her life are able to provide her with the uh, yeah. support that she needs right now as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Prayer is so key. Yeah. All right. Um, here's a question we received by email regarding Silas and Paul. I. I mean, it breaks my heart. But let me just read the, the question as it stands. In Acts, we read Judas and Silas, who themselves are prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen. Oh, the we believers. dealt with this on uh, Friday. So, yeah. so, just one more yeah. verse. Okay. Yeah. Um, recap Acts fifteen thirty-two through forty. He wants to know if it's a discrepancy. Verse thirty-four is the answer. Silas stated.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, oh, we,
0: we we talked about that there, and
1: and I guess the the guiding principle there, Sean, is you know when someone says is you know are, do we have a discrepancy in a particular passage of scripture? Like they will say, well, you know, the gospel accounts they have discrepancies. For instance, the uh, uh, man who was possessed by a demon in uh, Gadara, uh, one gospel account says there were two that were possessed there; the other says. Uh, there was just one.
0: There was just one.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it says <laughs> that. No. no. Oh, but, okay. Uh, that,
1: that, but that's the discrepancy that people will, will bring up. How do we
0: deal with discrepancies like that? You go to the text, you call the bluff, you ask them to show you where and when, and then if they can't verify their claim, then they're the one with egg on their face. Yeah, like
1: for instance the example we give you of uh, the fellow who was possessed by the demon there, if one of the Gospel accounts says there was just one demon-possessed man, then we've got a contradiction. Uh, The fact that one man is mentioned, the other is not in other Gospel accounts, is not a contradiction. Why?
0: It's an addition of detail. One can do talking, and the other can stand by. It doesn't mean that he doesn't exist, it means that only one was relevant to the conversation since he was conversing. Yeah,
1: and uh, that can really help you navigate through, say, the uh, accounts of Jesus' resurrection appearances, because oftentimes uh, people will say, well, here's a discrepancy here. Uh, One says there was one angel, the other says there were two. Uh, you know, what are we supposed to think? Well, once again, it's the addition of detail that we find there.
0: All right. Uh, Now, kind of been going back and forth. I'm trying to understand the question here, but this is from Isaiah, who I believe at his foundation is asking, uh, who should be punished for sinning? Well, um, I think uh, the issue, if I'm understanding this correctly. And we want to make sure that it's kept biblically. So just noting the point about commenting on United States or European or Sharia law, not relevant to the broadcast, if we are going to make this a biblical question, it's if someone sins, who deserves to be punished? Yeah, well, you know,
1: once again, I think the Scripture is pretty plain about all of this. Uh, In in the book of Ezekiel, uh, there's a, a very interesting passage about God calling the people of Israel out uh, about a uh, particular uh, proverb that was being used there. As a matter of fact, it says, uh, what do you mean when you use this proverb? This is Ezekiel chapter 18. Concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Uh, What they were saying is the reason that we're being punished is not because we've done anything wrong. It was our forefathers. Uh, You know, it's not my fault. It was my parents' fault. That we're in this mess. And uh, the Lord corrects them, says, As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die, but if a man is just and does what is lawful and right and so on, then he shall surely live, says the Lord. So, you know, the scripture basically says that each person is responsible for their own life decisions before the Lord. Now, as far as the subject of jurisprudence is concerned, in our society, an individual, generally speaking, is not going to be held accountable for the choices that somebody else has made, unless, of course, they were aiding and abetting in the commission of a crime. Uh, In our country, uh, having an abortion is not a crime. And so, you know, the, the questions that were being raised here about uh, individuals being punished for something along this line, you know, really is a non-starter because uh, abortion hasn't been called a crime. Now, individual states uh, are ruling now and making decisions. Some states have ruled that abortion is illegal, providing an abortion is illegal. But having an abortion has not been deemed illegal in the United States. All you have to do is go to a different state that has uh, a different set of policies along that line. Uh, some people will ask the question, will women be held accountable by God for having an abortion when they stand before him at Judgment Day? Well, the uh, thing that we have to understand about being held accountable by God at Judgment Day is that the only issue that is going to be relevant at that time, is did we accept or reject a relationship with God as was provided for us by Jesus' death and resurrection on our part? Um, You know, when it comes to sin, I would say, Isaiah, uh, a miss is as good as a mile. Uh, The only way that we can live in the presence of a perfect and holy God is to have a perfect and holy life to recommend us. We can either try to present our lives before God and say, you know, I I think I'm a pretty good person, at which uh, we are told in passages like Revelation chapter 20, there's going to be a great white throne judgment where an individual's works are going to be presented before them. They're going to be able to see how far short of living a perfect life uh, that they lived. But uh, God has provided a way of not uh, a perfect life as our entrance into heaven. Uh, Let's face it, none of us have a perfect life. But if we exercise our faith and trust in the only one who ever lived a perfect life, and that is Jesus, who willingly took that perfect life, laid it down for us, and paid the price for our sins, the wrath that was due God, due us from God for our sins, uh, and uh, put our faith and our trust in him, then we will find uh, not uh, sinless perfection, but forgiveness through faith in Christ is our ticket to heaven. So whether we have made large mistakes, small mistakes, uh, you know, that's not the issue. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God has one cure for those mistakes, and that is paying the price for our sins to the person of Jesus Christ.
0: So when it comes to Basically saying, well, at least I'm not like those evil people, or at least I haven't committed that kind of sin. They're the ones who want to be punished. Do we share the heart of God who wants to see people, according to Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, not destroyed for their sins, but for them to turn from their sin and live? Right. No, obviously not. We're not sharing the heart of God. If we desire justice, we will find it. But if we, on the other hand, are consistent with that and say, well, who else deserves justice? Well, not for that. Yeah, but for something else, the wages of sin is death. Be careful with that sort of mindset, because just because we're starting to confront a form of evil in our culture, it doesn't mean that we're exempt from the other things that either, A, we turned a blind eye to and justify in our own Christian circles and among our friends or in our society, but it also doesn't mean as well that they're recipients of the same mercy that we need every single day. Don't leave behind grace. It's and, a non-starter. And, and
1: uh, this really illustrates, I think, a, one of those passages that, uh, that definitely gets taken out of context when jesus said judge not lest you be judged in uh, matthew chapter seven in the sermon on the mount some people will say well that means that we as christians can't make any kind of moral uh pronouncements about different behaviors or or people acting in certain ways that's certainly not what jesus was talking about there but he goes on to say for with the same level of judgment you meet towards others it will be meted back to you in other words uh if we look at other people and judge them, uh, someday we're going to be judged by God on that same basis. That's why it is so important for us to understand that our only standing before God is based on the grace of Jesus Christ alone. The only hope of heaven we have is grace. And because we've received such great grace, we should be
0: gracious in terms of how we evaluate others. And note it's not belittling the sin of abortion notice i said those words in that order i acknowledge it as such but if i on the other hand am so i guess tunnel visioned away from my own heart and my need for mercy before god that i would not have it any other way but to see them judged for it i'm gonna have to eat those words and yeah. i don't want to yeah and and
1: that's really what it comes down to did you know jesus or not i mean i we quote the scripture a lot but it bears repeating. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, in verse 24, Jesus says, uh, "...whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He shall not enter into judgment, but is passed from death into life." Uh, we are told in John three sixteen and following, "...for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life." For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But I love what Jesus said as well as far as bringing clarity to this issue in verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, they have been done in God. So, you know, here we see the, the real issue. Have we received God's gift of forgiveness, or haven't we? And if we have rejected God's gift of forgiveness, the big question is why? And pretty much the answer is because people love darkness rather than light.
0: Yeah, and understand, So, well, what about the level of responsibility then? You just give your life to Jesus, you get away scat-free? No, the people who have had abortions performed not only have immediate consequences in the scarring to their body, but also guaranteed to their psyche. They have to bear that burden of guilt, and I don't have to explain that in detail. But I also note as well uh, ministries like, for example, a former abortion doctor, who I don't think he'll be ashamed at me talking about this, uh, Dr. Anthony Levitino, and others just like him who are former abortion doctors, but after having had experience in this field, having performed those things realize that they were legitimately taking a life and have no greater impact on this world than even the abortion victims themselves and the cries of their innocent blood than the people who spilt it. This is something that God can use. My desire is for them to come to a knowledge of the truth that they might be saved, not for them to answer for their pound of flesh like we're in some medieval draconian town square. Yeah. Okay? So just make sure that we're modeling God's heart, not ours. Yeah, and, and if
1: you're out there and perhaps you've had an abortion and you're struggling with that, you know, there are wonderful ministries like Hands of Hope here in Tucson that offer post-abortion trauma and, uh, and counseling uh, ministries. You can come alongside compassionate people who understand what you've gone through and be able to work through uh, some of those issues. And if you'd like to uh, get a hold of some of those resources, just uh, go to handsofhopetucson.org. That'd be a great place to start.
0: And if you're being lied to and manipulated into thinking that you're in a place in your life where you have no choice but to get an abortion, the same answer. These yeah. people offer free monograms. They offer free palliative care. They offer free, not only diapers, but also access and information that you can get on hold of adoption agencies and people who, in those ministries of themselves, would be the first in line to take your child. Yeah, real practical support. So. Yeah, so yeah. make sure that that's clear. Uh, here's a question from Holly. Uh, this one is regarding Islam, who wants to know, why do people call Islam a religion of peace? Um, two reasons. They're either lying or they've been lied to. Uh, First of all, in the Well, it is a
1: religion of peace. I guess it depends how you define peace, right? Well, it's... Its it's, goal is world
0: domination, which will bring an absence of conflict, which I guess you could define as peace. Unless, of course, that you're not being Muslim enough, according to their adherence to one of the many schools of Sharia, in which case the most blood that was ever shed in history in the Middle East is concerned, and that's an interesting history of bloodshed, was between other Muslims and each other. Look up the apostate wars, or in particular, the Battle of the camel, the famous Shia-Sunni split took place between Aisha and Ali. But the point being made is this, uh, in the Qur'an it makes a note that deception is permissible under the provision known as takiyah, and you can read more about this in the tafsir, the commentaries of Jalalain, where in the Qur'an, and let me get the exact surahs and chapters so that you don't have to take my word for it. The uh, interesting detail around all of this again in uh, Sir 16:106 and Sir 3:28, it notes that to protect yourself from the, uh, I guess, retaliation of your intentions to non-Muslim communities. You can say that you intend them well when you actually don't, and there was a note from one of Muhammad's closest companions that we smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. So it's this idea of subterfuge and deception, which Muhammad himself has quoted in the Hadith narrations, these are the traditions, uh, that war is deceit. So if we're asked the question from a devout Muslim who wants to make Muhammad the model for their life in every possible way. No, there are uninformed Muslims who wouldn't know their prophet from a bowl of soup, but the point we made is people who want to actually adhere to his teachings and know them and are willing to act on them, that is a person who is lying to you in order to ultimately achieve a greater standing so they can subjugate you outwardly but without consequence or retaliation. Uh, The reason why we need to be careful is that there are also people who were told this by people, whether it was their imam who was also lying to them, or people who were in college courses who, again, wouldn't know the prophet of Islam from a bowl of soup, that whole mindset is being stated. So if we ask the question, who am I talking to? It doesn't make a difference either way. You need to know what Islam is, and it doesn't mean peace. That would be shalom. Islam means submission, and what are you submitting to? The prophet of Islam, the one who claims this is how you submit to God by submitting to me in every decision that I make. You dress, you act, and you pay me as if I was a 7th century Arabian warlord, and if you don't adhere to my approach towards worship of the God I explained to you, then you are either going to be killed or subjugated or eventually both. The point being made though is this, Islam does not mean peace. Islam does not teach peace. Islam teaches submission and how you're to submit to God. The good news is our Lord doesn't want us to submit to anything apart from what he's shown and proven himself to be. The good news is for Muslims that Jesus' name is mentioned more than even their own prophet's name in the Quran, and that's where we can get to work. If you want ministries that will equip you for ministries to Muslims and to get them out of that web of lies, I recommend Acts 17 Apologetics. I would recommend CIRA International, C-I-R-A, and P-F-A-N-D-E-R Ministries as well. God bless you, we'll see you all again tomorrow.